0: Section 15 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 15, Walpole's Fall. Sir Robert Walpole's son wrote of his father that he loved power so much that he would not endure a rival. It may be said that it was this very quality which led to his downfall. Those who might have been admitted into his ministry and who would have brought strength to it were refused admittance and joined the opposition. Those who joined Walpole for a while were driven from him because he did not consult his colleagues and even interfered with their work. Thus gradually the opposition grew strong. At the beginning of Walpole's long rule, there was hardly any opposition at all. The enemies of the king's ministers were few, discredited disorganized. The majority of the people in England were either in favor of Walpole's policy of peace abroad and doing nothing, quieta non mowere, at home, or indifferent to politics altogether. This state of the public mind may be said to have continued about two-thirds of Walpole's time. Then a formidable opposition began to gather in which we can discern four separate elements, Jacobites and Tories, who may be regarded as the legitimate part of it, together with adherents of the Prince of Wales and discontented Whigs for whom Walpole could find no room. The first battle which this opposition won was on the Excise Bill in 1733. Walpole was perfectly in the right in his proposal, which was to readjust the duties upon tobacco and wine, This excise had been introduced into England by the Long Parliament just 90 years earlier, and it was borrowed by them from the Dutch. This origin of the scheme made it doubly hateful, and it certainly was very unpopular throughout England. Dr. Johnson, who published his dictionary some 20 years after this struggle, gave the following definition of excise, a hateful tax levied upon commodities and adjudged, not by the common judges of property, but wretches hired by those to whom excise is paid. Every financier who has written upon the subject since has approved of Walpole's scheme. But the feeling throughout England, especially in London and the large towns, was so strong that Walpole bowed before the storm. Some think that the irritation might have led to a successful rebellion against the House of Brunswick. Though Walpole had a majority in the House, he told his supporters that in the present inflamed temper of the people, the act could not be carried into execution without an armed force, and that he would not be the minister to enforce taxes at the expense of blood. In 1735 there appeared in Parliament, amidst the party at which Walpole scoffed as the boy patriots, a new member named William Pitt, who was then twenty-seven, and held a commission in the horse-card blues. His grandfather had been the governor of Madras, and had acquired fame of a certain kind, because in India he had purchased the largest diamond then known, which he had afterwards sold at an enormous profit to the regent for the King of France. Young Pitt had been educated at Eton, thence had gone to Oxford but had to leave Oxford, suffering from the gout which plagued him at intervals all his life through, for the good of his health. Pitt travelled through France and Italy, and on his return to England, took his commission in the blues and shortly afterwards entered Parliament as one of the members for Old Serum. This was one of the pocket boroughs abolished by the great reform bill, and may indeed be described as the one most frequently attacked and the greatest scandal of the old system for at the time of the reform bill there was not a single resident in Old Serum, and the two members were elected by a single property holder. This property had been bought by Pitt's grandfather. Pitt is described as tall and manly, very dignified, with a keen eye and a wonderful voice. This was full and clear, audible in a whisper, and when raised, filled the house with the volume of its sound." All accounts of his oratory agree that it was marvelous and carried away all hearers. No doubt he was much stronger in invective and sarcasm than in reasoning. His studied speeches were not considered equal to his spontaneous efforts. After Pitt's maiden speech, Walpole is said to have remarked, we must muzzle that terrible cornet of horse. The first muzzle tried was an offer to help Pitt to promotion if he would retire from Parliament. The second was his dismissal from the army. But Walpole had at last found a man neither to be bribed nor daunted. Some years afterwards the old Duchess of Marlborough, in admiration of his political conduct, left Pitt a legacy of ten thousand pounds. It is characteristic that his dismissal by the king and his minister was the signal for Pitt's appointment to a place in the household of the Prince of Wales. Until our own day, it has been said that each Prince of Wales, in turn, has been in opposition. George II opposed his father, and perhaps it was but natural that his son should oppose him. Frederick, Prince of Wales, hated his parents as much as they hated him. Nothing could be stronger than the language employed about him by his mother. "'My dear Lord,' wrote Queen Caroline in no measured terms, "'I will give it to you under my hand.' that if you are in any fear of my relapsing, that my dear firstborn is the greatest ass, and the greatest liar, and the greatest canai, and the greatest beast in the whole world, that I hardly wish he was out of it. This is violent language, especially from a mother, but the spirit of it was perhaps justified. It was merely to irritate the king, and not from any political views, that the Prince of Wales made his court the center of opposition to Walpole as the King's minister. At the end of 1737, Walpole lost his best friend by the death of this very Queen Caroline. On her deathbed, amidst much good advice that she gave her husband, she strongly recommended him to support Walpole. She had herself been a friend to Walpole's administration from the beginning of the reign. In her faults, as well as in her virtues, there was a similarity between the minister and the queen—an element of coarseness, a cynical contempt for others, together with a resolute determination to maintain peace and to govern wisely and humanely. In the years that were coming, King George had reason to regret his wife. Walpole at length succumbed to the united attacks of the opposition. The particular question was the war with spain the causes of which and of the wider Continental War are described in detail a little later in this volume. The greatest mistake of Walpole's life was yielding to the clamour and declaring war. It is doubtful if this yielding even postponed his downfall. He fought gallantly to the last, his love of power inspiring him. But when a general election placed him in a minority in the House of Commons and his friends urged him to retire, he tendered his resignation to the king. It is said that the king was so much moved on accepting the resignation that he fell on Walpole's neck, wept, and kissed him. This was in January 1742. Walpole accepted a pension of four thousand pounds a year in a peerage. As Earl of Orford, he lived yet three years amid the country pleasures that he loved so well. And, of section 15.